Rituals done rightly are important. We all have rituals in our lives. We stand when we're reading the Bible. And the idea behind that is that we want to remember this is an important time. It deserves respect and reverence. It communicates something of our values to go through that ritual. After our preaching, we have a time of response because when God speaks, we respond. This is a ritual, but it's a ritual that teaches us something. Ritual done rightly is very important. When we're raising a family and you bring the kids to church, if they were to look at you and go, ah, Sunday again? We just did this like seven days ago. You go, no, this is a ritual. This is important. We teach our bodies what's important. We make our bodies do what's important so that it shapes our mind, right? But the problem is when the ritual becomes dead, when we no longer know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Starting in the early 1990s, there was a war raging in America. I'm not talking about the Persian Gulf War in Iraq. I'm talking about a war that was being fought in churches, not with bullets and guns, but it was fought with words, it was fought with attendance, and at times even money. It's what we call the worship wars, the worship wars. Churches were having to come to grips with how their service was going to look and feel and sound. Growing out of the Jesus movement of the 1960s, there were folks that were making a push to change the way the traditional church service looked. There was a push to get rid of the organ and the piano and to bring in the guitar and the drum. There was a push to get rid of the hymns and to update to contemporary songs. There was a push to embrace all forms of technology. And of course, there were also those who resisted such changes. Godly churches, people who fear the Lord, resisted some or all of these transitions. I grew up in a really traditional church, a really traditional church that resisted all of these changes. For example, they knew that they had to allow the guitar on stage because it mentions in the book of Psalms a guitar-like instrument. So through gritted teeth, they would occasionally allow a guitar on stage, but you could only pluck it. You couldn't strum it because that was too much like rock and roll. Elvis strummed his guitar. Even here at Heartland, Denny tells the story of when we brought the drums on stage for the first time. It was a weeks-long transition as they debated and considered whether or not to add drums to the instruments. When they finally decided to add the drums, Denny's first step was just put them on the stage. No one sit beside, behind it, no one play it, just get people used to the idea <laughs> that there's drums on the stage. And then the first week that someone sat behind the drums, Denny encouraged them, just play it as light as possible, as he wanted to be considerate for those people who were resistant to the change. So what's fascinating is that this is not a new debate, right? From the earliest church, 
From our earliest church, we have had debates over how church services should be functioned. Early church leaders like Cyprian, named Cyprian, one was named John of Chrysostom, Athanasius, Augustine, for those who know church history, these are the heavy hitters. They did not like instruments in the church. Some of them felt like having an instrument play in church service was disrespectful to the instrument that God has given to all of us, our voices. And so they resisted instruments. Over a thousand years ago, when we started singing in churches with harmonies and melodies through the Gregorian chants, people resisted the new music. When Martin Luther began writing new hymns in the 1500s, people did not like the new tunes. I imagine that the first time Moses blew the ram's horn, there were some people that did not like the direction these new services were taking. So these examples all deal with music. And a preference for the style of music is often cited as a top three reason that people come and return to a specific church. This makes sense. And such strong reactions to our music show just how important it is to worship. And how we celebrate and praise our God is a big deal. And today we're going to focus on this idea of worship, but not just with our music. And this morning, there's two key ideas that will shape our discussion. The first is what is worship? What is worship? We're going to be talking about worship this morning, so what is it? And the second question is how do we worship rightly? So let's consider this first question right now. What is worship? So we need to define our terms. And so when we talk about worship, we're going to provide a definition, and this is uh, what I think a great definition of worship is. It's a response to God's revelation of himself. Okay? Worship is a proper response to God's revelation. There's an order here. First, God reveals himself, and then we respond. Revelation, response. Revelation, response. We see this over and over again in Scripture, right? In the book of Psalms, arguably one of the most worshipful books of the whole Bible, the people are praising God for his greatness, his power, his might, thanking him for his provision. But in all of those cases, it presupposes that God has already revealed himself. God has already shown himself to be mighty, so we praise him for his might. Paul, whenever he's praising God, when he moves into these expressions of praise, it's always after commenting about how God has revealed himself to us in Christ. Revelation response. Even in our church service, we try and follow this same model. Right after reading God's word, Revelation, we will often have a song of response. After the sermon, Revelation, we have a song of response. Revelation and response. So what is worship? It's that faithful, proper response to God's revelation. And our second question is how do we worship rightly? And what we're going to look at this morning is six characteristics of faithful worship that ought to direct our lives. And we're going to see this in our text this morning in the book of Malachi, the last of the minor prophets. There's lots of key texts we could look at from Malachi. I've been looking at a key text from each minor prophet, and this week I'm up to Malachi, the last minor prophet. 
There are lots of key texts we could look at, but I like this one because in this text, the people are worshiping God, but they're doing it rather poorly. They're worshiping God by bringing sacrifices of lame animals, right? Animals who can't walk, that have broken bones, that are sick, that are close to death. They're worshiping, but they're worshiping very badly. And as they worship badly, God lets them have it and says, this is not the kind of worship that I want. So we are able to learn from their bad example six characteristics of faithful worship. And so the first characteristic that we see is that faithful worship is God-focused. Faithful worship is God-focused. And we see this in the opening verse of our passage this morning, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Notice here, I've highlighted all of the words where God is referring to himself. As God is speaking to his people through his prophet Malachi, he says, if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, responding to his own name. God says, something has gone wrong. The focus is supposed to be on me. When we're worshiping, it's supposed to be about me. Now, for anyone else to say that is extreme arrogance. For anyone else to talk about themselves so much would be completely misguided. But it's not for God, because God is worthy of all worship. He says worship is supposed to be God-centered, but false worship is wrongly directed. False worship is directed towards another purpose, has another focus besides God. And there are other things that can take the place of God-focused worship. Our activities can look genuine. We may even feel like they're genuine, but they're misdirected. Sometimes we think that we are rightly responding to God with what we say and do and how we act, how we respond in all facets of our life, but maybe we're doing it just to fit in, right? Fitting in with our culture, our subculture here at Heartland. That seems strange to say fitting in with our culture, but we have a culture here. And sometimes we're worshiping because we think that's what we're supposed to be doing right now. Everyone else seems to be doing it. This is how people are supposed to act when they come into church, right? Or sometimes we worship and we do certain activities because our family has certain expectations for how we're supposed to act, and so we're just not wanting to rock the boat. Or perhaps it's a feeling that it gives us certain things that we do. A real challenge that we have, even as leadership in the church, sometimes is we want to make sure that we are not doing certain activities to simply play to the crowd. Right? And that's a real challenge playing to the crowd, right? Our goal, our focus when we're designing Sunday services is not to fill a building, right? Our goal is not to produce response where people say, oh, this was, I met with Jesus today. That's, that cannot be the focus because the tail is then wagging the dog, right? Instead, we need to focus on God, Focus on bringing him praise and leave the results to him. So faithful, faithful worship is God-focused. Have we made worship something that it isn't supposed to be by forgetting who worship is supposed to be about? 
Number two, faithful worship is honor-giving. It's God-focused, and it's honor-giving. We see this in the same verse. God asks, if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? He gives his own illustration here. He says, we honor our own parents. How much more should we honor God, the creator of the universe? We honor our own masters, our own bosses. We fear them. We give them right respect. How much more should we honor God? We can think of an example from your own life of a teacher, perhaps, or a boss who deserved fear. For me, that's my ninth grade PE teacher, Mr. Hamilton. Mr. Hamilton had been in the military before he became a teacher, and he ran a tight ship. When Mr. Hamilton came out, if the boys were horsing around, all it took was one word from Mr. Hamilton, and we straightened right up. We feared him because we just knew how many push-ups he could fit into a 30-minute period. We knew how many laps he could make us run. We feared him. How much more should we fear our God, who is even more powerful than any teacher or boss and more perfect in love and faithfulness and kindness and goodness? Faithful worship is honor-giving. But the people do not honor God. Instead, it says that they despise his name. And how do they do that? By offering polluted sacrifices, right? These are the sacrifices of animals with broken legs. He says, you wouldn't even present that to your governor. This is a really great example for us, right? Because the governor during this time was not a friend. The governor had been appointed by the Persians. They were a conquered people. And they said, you don't even like the governor. It represents all the oppression that you're under. But if that governor were to come to your house, you wouldn't offer them these kinds of sacrifices, these kinds of animals, these kinds of gifts. Imagine if Governor Waltz came to your house. You would not feed him three-day-old leftovers and a tall glass of sour milk. We respect the office, hopefully. (laughs) We respect the office too much. So they despised God's name by offering false sacrifices. And we see that false worship despises. And instead of these kinds of sacrifices, animals that needed to be done away with anyway, animals that needed to be culled from the herd, God calls instead for a costly worship, a worship that demands of us our best, our time, our efforts, our money, Not simply the leftovers, not simply something that was left over on the side, but the first fruits of our offerings. Faithful worship gives honor because it is costly. So faithful worship is honor giving, and faithful worship is righteously led. It's led by righteous leaders. Our passage this morning, God is talking to the priests He says right here, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. God is talking to the priests. The priests were the religious leaders of ancient Israel. They were the ones who were supposed to know Scripture. They were the ones who were supposed to help the people know what God required and lead them in how to do the sacrifices. 
They were supposed to assist in the proper sacrifices. This is how it was supposed to work. But the leaders have gone off track because faithful worship is righteously led. Faithful worship should be righteously led. And later, Malachi, speaking God's word, says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. God says, it would be better for you just to shut the doors of the temple. It would be better to just blow the fire out. It would be better for there to be no sacrifices than for there to be these false sacrifices because the priests have led the people astray. We see this same kind of idea today. The failure of the leaders leads people into sin. Unfortunately and sadly, there are too many examples to even name of pastors who fall into sin, and as a result, it leads to the shipwreck of many who are following them. We hear too many examples of pastors who fall into the sin of leadership failure, financial crimes, sexual indiscretions, And as a result, many people leave the faith. They leave church. They're turned off to anything the message of Christ. And on one level, this is understandable. If we can't even follow the leaders, what does that say about the one that we're supposed to be following in Jesus? This is why the New Testament puts such a priority on choosing leaders carefully, because leaders matter. Having the right kind of leader results in the faithful flourishing of the people. So we need to be careful who we follow because leaders are vulnerable. But also, be careful you who are following because failure in leadership is not an excuse. I love how Malachi here, he starts by condemning the leaders and says, you have made it difficult and hard for the people to worship. But towards the end of our passage, he doesn't let the people off the hook. He says, nevertheless, you should have known better. At the end, he says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. This is the everyday people. It says, yes, the leaders should be helping us worship rightly. They should be knowing the truth and guiding us into faithfulness. Nevertheless, when we offer false worship, it's on us. It's on us as individuals. So that we have the leader and the follower. Be careful who you follow and be careful you who are following because false worship follows blindly. Number four, Faithful worship is word-centered. Faithful worship is word-centered. We've already looked at these verses talking about the pollution of the animals and how they were lame. It says, when you offer blind animals, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? This was a direct violation of God's word, right? Not only is it wrong just because it's disrespectful, because it's meaningless, it's meaningless to offer something that you were going to throw away anyway, It's also evil because it goes against the very commands of God. Over and over again, God commands sacrifice, but of a spotless animal, meaning an animal that is strong, 
an animal that has no broken bones, no sickness, no infirmity. They were breaking God's law by offering these kinds of animals. Faithful worship is word-centered. If worship is a response to God, the way that He reveals Himself is through His Word. The people should have heard that Word from Moses. They should have known the law and responded in obedience. But their worship was not Word-centered. Because false worship is groundless. Right? False worship can be based on our, our own sub- experiences, our own subjective insights, but it's not anchored to the truth of Scripture. So, false worship is groundless. So, when we're thinking about worship in our lives and what it means to respond to God faithfully in our work, in our homes, in church, we want to make sure that we're Word-centered, that it is true to Scripture, that it flows out of the very teachings of the Bible. Number five, faithful worship is all-inclusive. One of my favorite vacations was going on a cruise where it was all-inclusive, right? You had the, the, the dinner, you had dessert, the activities, the shows. It was all-inclusive. Worship is the same way. It requires every part of us. Towards the end of our passage, it says, The people come and they're offering to God a sacrifice, and they say, what a weariness is, and they snort at it. I don't know of any other time where the word snort shows up in Scripture, but you just, it's a scoff, right? (sighs) Sacrifices, here we go again. Right now, they're not actually saying these words out loud. They know better than when you're bringing an offering to go, yeah, I really don't want to be here, priest, but (sighs) what else are you going to do? Right? They're not actually saying that with their mouths, but their actions are betraying the ideas of their heart. Because worship is something that should encompass our whole person. Right? It is something that is of our hands, what we do, our head, what we're thinking, and our heart, what we're loving and who we are loving. Their actions reflect the corruption of their heart. This is turned in to a empty or a dead ritual. Dead ritual is no good, right? A dead ritual is something that at one point may have been good, but has lost all meaning, all significance, all power to shape us. Now notice, I said dead ritual. Rituals are actually a really good thing, right? Rituals done rightly are important. We all have rituals in our lives. We stand when we're reading the Bible, and the idea behind that is that we want to remember this is an important time. It deserves respect and reverence. It communicates something of our values to go through that ritual. After our preaching, we have a time of response, because when God speaks, we respond. This is a ritual, but it's a ritual that teaches us something. Ritual done rightly is very important. When we're raising a family and you bring the kids to church, if they were to look at you and go, ah, Sunday again? We just did this like seven days ago. You go, no, this is a ritual. This is important. We teach our bodies what's important. We make our bodies do what's important so that it shapes our mind, right? But the problem 
is when the ritual becomes dead, when we no longer know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Right? And there's plenty of stories of church his, throughout church history of people who were doing things and had no understanding of the reason why. So the problem is not ritual, but dead ritual. Because faithful worship is all-inclusive. It includes our bodies. It includes our rhythms. And they can change and train our mind. And false worship is small, right? Meaning it just gets at our, at our hands, maybe. Or maybe we do something, but it doesn't encompass all of what, who we are. So let's look briefly at a few points of application. First, we need to expand our view of worship. If worship is a response to God's revelation, then this is much more than just singing, right? Worship, when we talk about coming to worship, we don't mean just singing. We're responding to all of God's revelation. When God reveals himself to us, even in nature, the beautiful changing of the seasons, we respond with gratitude and awe and wonder. That is worship. When we go to work on Monday morning and we say, God has looked at the entire universe and said, this world is mine and everyone in it will one day praise me, living in light of that truth is worship. When we are raising our children to know and fear God because he has commanded us to do this solemn task, that is worship. So the first thing we want to do is to expand our view of worship. And second, we want to give God opportunities to reveal himself. Worship is revelation and response. God must first reveal himself. So let's give God opportunities to reveal himself. Through reading his word privately, through getting connected with a Sunday school class or a small group Bible study or a prayer group, let's give God opportunities to reveal himself by coming to church. That's what we're doing saying, God, I'm ready to listen if you would just speak. Give God opportunities to reveal himself. We can't control God. We can't make him show up. We can't make him reveal himself to us. But he has promised to do so through his word and through Jesus Christ. Number three, hold religious leaders to a high standard. This is my last time preaching, so I can just get to say this, and you have to do it when Denny comes back. But this is actually, this is a great point. It's a powerful point for us to remember. We need to hold our religious leaders to a high standard. It is a good thing to ask questions. It's a good thing to say, have we considered this? Can you help me understand why we're doing it this way? Holding religious leaders to a high standard is important. Hold the leaders in your life to a high standard. Who are you listening to on your podcasts, on the radio programs? Hold them to the high and righteous standard. But I mean this in another way as well. Not only accountability, but support. Hold your leaders to that standard. Support them to that high standard. Pray for your leaders. Encourage them. Support them. Hold them. You as well are in charge of how the leaders perform. Number four, take ownership of your own worship. If you have a bad worship life, it's no one's fault but your own. We need to take, you need to take ownership of your own worship. You are in charge of you. 
How many times as a parent do you say that? Right? Especially when you have multiple siblings, multiple kids, and one tries to help out a little too much, and you say, listen, you are in charge of you. It's the same thing for us today. Right? We are in charge of our own worship. Now, for those who are paying attention, I said that there were six characteristics of faithful worship, but we only looked at five. And so, in conclusion, I want to look at number six, that faithful worship is a joyful foretaste. Faithful worship today is an appetizer of the ultimate worship feast that we will be having in the future. Malachi 1.11 says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In this passage, God has rejected false worship because one day he will receive full worship. One day, we will all gather together before the throne and sing holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Our worship today is just simply a shadow of that perfect worship that will come. So if worship is a response to God's revelation, the fullest revelation that we have ever received is Jesus Christ. If worship is a response to God, in response to who God is and how He's revealed Himself, the fullest explanation of God is Jesus. This means that when we encounter the risen Christ, we cannot help but worship. We worship at the God who is revealed to us in Jesus. In just a few moments, we will have our time of response. We're going to have two elements. First, we're going to sing a song, The Heart of Worship. And this song challenges us to expand our view of worship, to remember that when the music fades and all is stripped away, it's not about the singing, it's about that all-inclusive life response to the revelation of God's Word. And we will sing these words together. We will also respond in communion, action, deed, where we will respond to our great God, who is revealed to us in Jesus, who is ultimately revealed to us on the cross. So let us worship together with an expansive understanding of what worship is, as we respond to God who has revealed himself to us most fully in Jesus. Thank you.